Hey folks, if you've been tuning in over the last couple of months, you've heard all about the Game Time app and how it can save you some serious cash on last minute tickets to sports, concerts, and all types of shows. You know about the two tap checkout, you know about the seat selection features. Well, now Game Time's hooking you up for the holidays with a $10 credit. Here's what to do download the Game Time app in Google Play or the App Store. Click on the My Tickets section of the app, create an account, then under the Billing section, redeem code THEATHLETIC. Once again, that's THEATHLETIC, all one word for $10 off your first purchase. That's free money, people. Credit is only available to the first 1,000 people who redeem the code, and it expires at the end of the year. That's December 31st, 2019. So make moves quick and score last-minute tickets with game time. our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. We are back from our holiday break. The Red Wings are back from their holiday break. And they welcome everyone back with two of their least ugly losses of the season, I guess you'd say. I can't believe it's a real sentence I just said. You know, I'll give you the Florida one. The Tampa one was still pretty ugly. And I was going to ask you, do we are they really back? But then, yeah. Yeah, The I thought the Florida game was at least reasonably close and reasonably competitive at times. But the Tampa game, you know, for long stretches, I think Mickey Redmond probably said Harlem Globetrotters 15 times, if my count was correct. So, But that's normal. You know, if it's, that, that is normal, maybe a little bit above average. But, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a rough first back-to-back. Uh, and so now the Wings are sitting, I guess, one game away from the halfway mark with a strong 21 points. I feel you, but it's also only the second time this season that the Red Wings have had consecutive losses of a goal, of only one goal. The other one was a four-game streak in November where two of them went to overtime and then they lost by a goal uh, against Ottawa and Columbus. But So I feel like just losing by one goal, by definition, back-to-back games. right? It's something. I don't mean that. Look, I'm not. I'm not trying to, <laughs> trying to pump the tires or anything. I just – it's uh, – it's something, man. I don't know. There's, it's more of the same. You know, I thought the Florida game, they at least obviously put the puck in the net. I, in this one, there was a couple of moments between Zadina and Robbie Fabry that I think were pretty notable. But really, the only story out of that game that you can reasonably tell is the Red Wings let down Jonathan Bernier big time. Yeah, I mean, Bernier had another stellar night, and he's had a couple of games this season against Montreal even against uh, Toronto when Howard got pulled in that game where the Wings got absolutely shellacked, uh, you know, he was still able to to play reasonably well when he was dealing with the flu that night. Uh, and so he's really given the Wings a couple of excellent, excellent performances this year. And unfortunately, the Wings have just not given him that support. I mean, tonight, how many games have we talked about where the Wings gave up fewer than three goals? I mean, on the season, they're... Uh, they're averaging giving up four a night. And so when you say they're, they're giving up two in that scenario where Bernier's doing just an absolutely stellar job, I can't tell you how many times he made a stop where the, the lightning were setting up, uh, along the goal line or kind of along the faceoff dots and passing right into the slot for the one timer. I want to say he stopped maybe four or five of those and they just 
high quality chances and, and the wings just could not find a way to put the puck in the net for him. Yeah, he was outstanding. And I think, you know, as, as usual, the Red Wings do, I mean, unusual that they get a goaltending performance like that. As usual, they fail to put any points on the board to make it worth the while. Um, it's not even like they had that many chances. Andreas Athanasiu had one early. Luke Lindenning had a look. And then, yeah, just a few third period really looks at the net that, that you could call scoring chances. I, I don't know what they'll be by the end, uh, but I suspect Tampa wins it wins it heavily in that department. Yeah, I mean, you can honestly make a strong argument that after the Glendening breakaway and the Athanasiu chance, the Wings really generated nothing. Uh, I think at that point in time, shots on goal were maybe 6-3 to three in favor of Detroit. And then Tampa got that power play where they actually had the puck in the Detroit zone for three consecutive minutes. There was literally no break where that puck left the Detroit zone. Uh, they piled on the shots. They took the next 10 shots on goal. And really after that point in time, I didn't think the Wings ever mounted anything of substance save for, you know, a couple of chances that were created largely by Philip Zadina. Yeah, and the starkest thing for me was the power plays, especially when they when they came in short succession one after another, watching the Red Wings power play and then the Lightning power play. What a world of difference that is. And not only how cleanly Tampa is able to get set up when they're in the zone, but just there's none of this issue where they need to to scramble with the puck with one extra man. I mean, it it is night and day watching from what from what everyone has seen from the Red Wings so far. Yeah, that first period was the perfect encapsulation of what you're saying, where the Wings are, it's roughly even in those first 10 minutes of the game. The Wings actually get the first power play, and they get absolutely nothing on goal. In fact, Tampa gets the better chances on that power play. Uh, and then right after that, the Wings take a penalty, and Tampa possesses the puck for the entire two minutes in the Detroit zone. And then a minute after that, uh, before the Wings were finally able to get the puck out of their own zone. And that passing that was on display, the amount of chances they generated, it was just unbelievable to watch. And that continued really throughout the game. I mean, Tampa's power play was a huge story in this, and they really piled it on Detroit's penalty kill. You're going to look at the numbers and say, hey, Detroit really did a okay job um, on the penalty kill because they didn't give up a ton to the number one home power play. I think they said Tampa was clicking at about 38% at home. All that being said, Tampa had a ton of chances and could have scored two, three, four times if not for Jonathan Bernier coming up huge. Do we care about home and away power play? Is that something that I should care no. about? No. Okay. It's really not, but it's a broadcast stat. So, you know, all the games happen in the season and it doesn't really matter home versus away because there's nothing fundamentally different about those two situations. But noting it that it exists. Yeah, that's fair. It's it's always one of those where you feel like if there were just enough home and away games – it would stabilize. I mean, you could you could randomize it by weekend games and weekday games and probably find some weird stuff too, I figure. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could pick all the Sunday games. You could pick, you know, the, you want to basically say if you're going to do a split on a stat, is there something fundamentally different about one group versus the other group that would lead you to believe that there's a difference or a difference should exist or that the difference is meaningful due to what you are splitting those two things by? And unfortunately, home and away, there's not really a meaningful difference because... Uh, there's nothing fundamentally different about the power play. You don't get more players. You don't get to start with the puck in a different location. You don't change your lines any differently. You're not any closer to the net in certain respects. Your scorekeepers may be a little bit more generous in awarding you shots, but outside of that, 
Um, there's nothing really fundamentally different between those home and road splits. So all that being said, Tampa was clicking at 38% on that power play at home. And while the numbers may look like Detroit did their job, Tampa really had tons of chances to convert. Yeah, maybe like at the old days at the Joe with the springier boards, there'd be something to it. But but anyway, to your point, yeah, I mean, Tampa's power play was as advertised uh, Sunday night, and I thought they were outstanding. It was, you know, I think they only gave up, Red Wings only gave one goal to them. It probably should have been more like two or three. Yeah, I think Tampa had maybe 10 or 11, maybe even more than that, shots on the on the power play several from right in the slot territory, real high-quality chances. They should have had a couple more. And if not for Jonathan Bernier kind of playing out of his mind, it would have been a lot worse on the scoreboard. You could have easily seen Tampa score four or five or even six with some of the chances they had tonight. So, again, like you mentioned off the top, Max, there was a wasted performance from Bernier on a kind of in a game where the Wings haven't really gotten us from their goaltenders. Because um, when you look at the quality of shots – against the Red Wings, and you say, all right, the Wings give up, you know, they should give up three goals based on the quality of shots against them. There have only been three games this season where the Wings goalies have saved more than one goal above expected. Bernie has given two of those three. Tonight actually clocked in at .72 more than expected using the evolving hockey model. But the Wings have conversely had 17 games where they've given up one more goal than they should have. And Bernier has actually only got four of those, Jimmy Howard leading the way with 10. Uh, and so it's it was a rare night for the Wings to even get .72 goals saved above expected uh, for them, and they just couldn't find a way to put the puck in the net. By game score, the two worst Red Wings tonight, according to this is off Dom's model measured by HockeyStatCards.com, Dylan Larkin and Tyler Bertuzzi, did that line up with what you were seeing out there? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that you could have fundamentally said this line looked horrible but you could tell that for long stretches of the game they were pinned in their own zone by the Stamco Sorelli Kaloran line I thought that line significantly outplayed the Larkin line they were matched against each other for about eight minutes at five on five per natural stat trick and that line in that time period was able to outchance uh, or basically outshoot the Larkin line nine to two uh, at five on five. And so I thought that line really hemmed in the Larkin line. They weren't able to generate much of a dangerous chance. And it was just really atypical, uh, from what we've come to expect from Dylan Larkin's line. I think he's again getting used to another winger. Uh, the last two games have been Andreas Athanasiu primarily playing on that wing before, you know, the wings kind of went away from that later in the game. But yeah, I mean, th- those two did not have a strong night. Uh, Bertuzzi and Larkin being those two, uh, and they've really struggled against Tampa's, uh, I guess, their second line, although it's conceivably a first line for most teams. Right, and yeah, I mean, it, to some degree, you're right. It, this matching up against Stamkos probably accounts for a lot of that, I, especially, though, I think after the way that uh, both of those guys played against Florida, you probably, if you're the Red Wings, would have liked to see them build on that a little more, especially as they kind of try and... They're going to have to be the catalyst if this team's going to... They're not going to dig themselves out at this point, but if they're going to kind of save face a little bit and avoid being a historically bad team, I think, you know, against against Florida, Larkin was probably their best player. Yeah, and he was able to get himself on the score sheet, something that he's really struggled with, even though his on-ice play has been relatively decent. You know, he got himself a couple of points in the Florida game, but, you know, again, you have a step back against... Tampa, and again, that, a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Stamp Coast line was on the ice for a large portion of Larkin's minutes, and 
really hem that line in and Tampa was in full puck possession mode. I mean, you know, flashback 12 years and that's what the Red Wings look like and that's what they used to do to other teams uh, on a night in and night out basis. And so it was certainly disappointing to see, but I guess the, the saving grace in all of that as well, the Larkin line was quote unquote able to absorb that matchup where they didn't necessarily lose it in a significant way that did allow the Zadina line, I think, to flourish a little bit. Um, you know, more relative to the other lines for the wings. Zadina was good. I, he still kind of struggles, I think, right when he's over the line, uh, I think to kind of make that quick decision of what he's going to do, maybe. Like he, he had one where I think it went pretty well and he ended up just losing the puck. I think a defenseman probably challenged him on it. But I think you'd like to see him go maybe a little harder than that, um, than he has, or at least harder and deep, or maybe just a little more decisive. I don't know if that's just kind of eye bias though, and maybe, Maybe it looks different uh, on ice level than it than it does on my – well, these ones, it was on TV. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point to bring up because with his skill level, you would like to see him attack the defenseman a little bit more. You know, I'm not sure if this is the rush you're talking about, but in the third period, he does have a great rush where he's able to go inside-outside on a, on a Tampa defender and then gets to the next level, loses the puck off a stick, goes to the corner – um, but you would have liked to have seen him maybe make a better challenge on that defenseman and maybe see if he can get to the inside and generate a chance. But I think part of Zadina's growing process has been maybe shying away from those riskier plays, recognizing what his team's defense looks like, and he is opting for more conservative plays and maybe safer plays to get his footing underneath him. And it's hard to argue with it because if you look at his results since he's been called up, uh, which was November 24th, he's leading the team in points, and he's leading the team in 5-on-5 five five expected goals for percentage. I mean, he's been the best player on the ice from that perspective, as well as leading the team in scoring and leading the team in 5-on-5 five five scoring. And so it's it's hard to say that what he's doing right now isn't, quote-unquote, the best thing he should be doing. But in my opinion, and, you know, I share your belief, Max, I do think he could be more aggressive in attacking the net using that elite skill level, but I do wonder if there's a certain extent that he's just concerned with what's behind him. It's certainly possible. And I think one of the one of the things that they the Red Wings have noted is about how, you know, his ability to go get the puck back. And so maybe it's just a something where he's assessing, okay, if if I make this move, am I gonna be able to go back and, and retrieve this puck if it doesn't go well? Maybe that's something that just gets worked out with time. I have to imagine it is. I mean everyone has seen the skill level this guy has and I think most people will expect it uh you know, those moves will start playing for him too. Right now, the give and go game, though, I think has been really effective for him. And you saw the one play, uh, in the third period, I think it was, with the drop pass to Robbie Fabry, um, that almost turned into a really nice chance. Yeah, I mean, him and Fabry had some good chemistry in the second and third period. I mean, they were able, uh, they were all part of that group that got the Fabry goal on that deflection. Zadina had several good chances right before the Fabry, uh, goal, and Athens, he was able to get the puck back to Ronick. Ronick, Shoots the puck and Fabry deflects that in. And so I do think there's a little bit of chemistry there. Fabry started the night on the third line, but towards the end of the game was elevated. And you were seeing a little bit of the second line looking like Athena CU, Fabry, and, and Zadina for maybe about three or four minutes at five on five. So more to come. And I'll be curious to see if the Wings do opt to go with Athena CU back at center, uh, or Fabry, who played a little bit of center when he was a jun- in juniors. Uh, now that Philpola is going to be out as that second line center, at least for this game, maybe 
more. I think Blashill still has to comment further if uh, Philpo is going to miss some more games beyond that. But that'd be a curious uh, pairing or trio to see move forward because they did have a little bit of chemistry on that goal tonight. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I think, you know, the Red Wings, now that Anthony Mantha, which I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit here, uh, is out for another month, are going to have to get creative again, trying to find two lines that can score on a consistent basis. And uh, I'm sure that's not something our listeners are real eager to hear after how it went the last time Mantha was out. Uh, but it is going to be the new reality here for a while. Yeah, I mean, it's just looking like Blashill's struggling to figure out who's going to play next to Larkin and Bertuzzi and what's he going to do with his second and third lines. And there's no easy answer right here. You may say, oh, naturally, just elevate Philip Zadina. But at that point, you're, you're kind of putting your three best play drivers all on the same line. And Zadina has demonstrated some ability to drive play away from Larkin and Bertuzzi. And so you can't really argue with that. So it's a matter of how the other dominoes are going to fall into place. Yep, I think that's a fair point. Anything else you want to talk about from these two games before we move on into some other stuff, the World Juniors, some of the newsy stuff, all that? all that. No, I think uh, we pretty much summed up these two games. It's two more losses, although on the scoreboard, they were competitive. So you do agree with my original point. <laughs> I'll give it to you, Max. Fantastic. That's all I wanted. Uh, okay, so some injury things first. Mantha is out for at least four weeks with... What I think, I think the phrasing was rib type issues. I have no idea what that means. I don't know what is rib type that isn't a rib. Maybe you know, you've got a medical I mean, it could degree. be a pec muscle, okay. like a pectoral muscle. Uh, that would be, I mean, maybe there's a pec muscle strain, although that'd be a little bit interesting or a pec muscle tear of some sort. But that's the only other thing I can think of that would fall under rib type injury besides bruised or broken ribs. Yeah, I think the if you're looking for a positive outlook, it's that they said this particular at least four weeks isn't related to the head, which was obviously a concern. That doesn't rule out a potential head injury uh, previously, but it doesn't mean that you know a month missing a month for a head injury would be very scary. If you're looking for any positive, it's that. But but if you're being realistic, this team has proven it cannot survive without Anthony Mantha. Yeah, I mean he's been their engine. He's been their MVP. You had a good piece talking about. Well, if he's not going to be their all-star, then who will be? Because he's really been the best player on this team by far. So the Wings need him back. You are right. The positive is that if this is a rib injury, a muscle injury, those things all heal. Hopefully there was no sort of serious concussion or any other concussion play that uh, as a result of that hit he took from Jake Muzzin uh, a couple weeks back. But... Uh, yeah, it's going to be a rough sledding. I think you saw a little bit of what it looks like against Tampa uh, without Anthony Mantha, and honestly, you may see more of that in the next four weeks as the Wings try to figure out what to do. Do you have any concern? I know some of these are kind of isolated. Mantha's had some injuries now. Like Some of them have been hand from fighting-related things. Obviously, there was the kind of freak knee incident earlier this year. We think it was a knee, at least. Uh, and then the now rib type injury here is this kind of coincidental or do you see any trend this is a question that i think comes up a lot with guys who sustain you know several injuries but if they're not necessarily related to to one another can they really be called injury prone it's not like a guy re-tearing a groin over and over where you can say hey that's what it is is that something that in your mind should be worrisome or is it just kind of a, a weird coincidence of of events Yeah, this is a really fascinating question because if you look back at Mantha's injury history, I mean, 
you go back to his first season in the AHL, he breaks his leg. And he misses an extended period of time. And then over the subsequent seasons, once he's up in Detroit, he breaks his hand twice. He Now this season has the knee issue, now a rib issue. I don't know that you could necessarily label him as injury prone when, you know, undeniably four of those injuries or three, at least three of those injuries have come when he tries to engage in a fight. So the number one thing is, Anthony don't do Memphis, that. Please stop <laughs> trying to fight because you will either break your hand or get a rib type injury. Uh, but really beyond that, I mean, the freak accident with the breaking of the leg and then whatever the knee issue was this year, those, those happen. I think those are just regular tweaks. So I'm not ready to label him as injury prone, but I know Red Wings fans are certainly scared, uh, given what they saw Johan Franzen go through as being that big prototypical scoring winger. And then he dealt with numerous concussions that ultimately forced the end of his career. You had Henry Zetterberg with lingering back issues. You've had Jimmy Howard have multiple kind of growing tweaks over the last three, four years now. So, you know, it's certainly a scary proposition, but I, I don't know that I'm ready to label him just given that all the injuries are very different and several of them are related to him trying to fight people, which he should just stop trying to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm not buying that at all either. Like I, to me, injury prone is one injury that keeps recurring and it's a, it just eventually it boils down to he can't keep that part of his body healthy. That to me is not an issue with Mantha, especially when you get into the head injury stuff. Like I'm pretty sure you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong about this, but isn't it the case that when you kind of stack concussions and those effects get worse and worse, that would be a legit one. But that really hasn't been, as far as I'm aware, a recurring issue for him. Yeah, I mean, to our knowledge, again, all if you really pull any hockey player who's played, you know, into the juniors and, and sure. beyond, they'll tell you they've had multiple concussions. But you no, know, you're to your point when you're stacking concussions, particularly when you haven't recovered from the first concussion and you're still in that post concussion syndrome and you take another repeated knock, that's when you can start to have significant issues and a little bit of what happened with Franz and a little bit with what happened with Crosby actually several years back when he took two hits to the head kind of in successive games and that's what caused him to lose a season where he was honestly almost averaging two points per game. Uh, That's when you really worry about it but you know I just don't see that with Anthony Manta here. I think it's just very different injuries and a lot of them just related to fighting and so just step one stop fighting step two play hockey and these are going to be the normal kind of wear and tear injuries that I think happen I don't think you can label them as injury prone I don't either and especially with this one if it is a a rib type injury like think about how big Anthony Manta is if he falls hard on an area that is near the rib like that's a lot of weight coming down on it makes sense it's kind of a freak injury and it would have been avoided if there weren't a, a fight initiated so I am rejecting the injury prone label uh Facebook and Twitter commenters be damned uh, the other injury is, is Valtteri Filppula, and this is a guy who I was speaking of Twitter. Got a lot of heat for saying that the Valtteri Filppula signing had been, quote, solid last week. Uh, I guess now we're going to find out how solid it was because uh, I don't know how long he'll be out, but I think he's, you're going to see pretty quickly that without him in, in that center spot on the second line, it, it's harder and harder to make uh, make effective offensive combinations. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you're wrong in saying that it's been a necessary signing in that he has done better than any other option Detroit has right now. Uh, and I think that's the important thing is relative to what else Detroit has, 
Coppola has been what you needed. Because looking at it, you started off the night with maybe Nielsen being projected to play between Zadina and Helm. Then at moments you had Athanasiu slot into there. You had Glenn Denning sometimes shift up. But basically you had one line that rolled together most of the night, the Larkin, Athanasiu, Bertuzzi line. And then you had three lines of mush because Blaschel was continuing to experiment and try and find who could center uh, either Fabri and Perlini and who could center Helm and Zadina. And he wasn't really having a lot of success. And so now you're looking at it and you're going, where's the help going to come from? Because, you know, the Nielsen struggles cannot be overstated. I mean, yes, he got his first goal against Florida, but he has not looked like the same player he was at the beginning of the contract with Detroit. And then after that, you know, Glenn Denning, as he's good, you can put him in that role, but he's not going to be able to generate or stimulate the offense in the same way that Philpola can. You could try to put Darren Helm back at center, but he hasn't really played extended minutes at center in a really long time. And so now you're talking about either moving Athanasiu back to center, Fabry back to center, who hasn't really played center since he was in juniors. You don't have any good options. I mean, it's it's not easy here, and so that's why I think the Philpola signing was necessary, and it's why I think you're going to see the Wings continue to juggle their lines until he's back, depending on how long he's out. We don't know that information just yet, uh, but he was kind of what solidified that second-line center role and allowed the rest of the dominoes to fall into place and allowed Detroit to actually run four lines that could stay together. Yeah, Dana Lukiji did report that the Red Wings don't think it's a long-term thing uh, but it also doesn't sound like there was any clarity on on specifics. So we'll see. I mean, if 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 the plan is to work Andreas Athanasiu there for a couple of games, if they can catch something there, it might not be the worst thing in the world. And maybe maybe Athanasiu centers a line uh, for some time this season. I mean, it's something that I think you and I have generally thought that he's probably best suited at at wing. But if they want to play him at center and it, and it gives them some offense, they're not really in a position to uh, stick up their nose at that. Could it go any worse? No, it can't. I can say for a fact it cannot. Uh, yeah, I'm so, on board. Yeah, there's there's that. Uh, okay, and then obviously Jonathan Bernier back. We touched on that. He was outstanding. Probably the the exact game that the Red Wings would want to see from him on, in his return from injury. Uh, maybe he picked up some bionic parts or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he's a guy who's actually bounced out of the lineup now a couple of times. So it was good to see him back. Good to see him looking healthy and. Honestly, his his flexibility certainly got tested against the Lightning. Yeah, it did. And, you know, he's a guy who I he's, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt at this point that he needs to be the Red Wings, uh, you know, I don't quote-unquote starter, but he needs to get the lion's share of the games from here on out. Yeah, I mean, he should play 60% of the games the rest of the way. I think it's pretty clear he's established himself as the much better goaltender. I think Jimmy Howard's having a historically – awful season for him. I mean, really the bottom has fallen out here. He's worst in the league from the goalie goals above replacement model uh, by evolving hockey. He's worst in the league when you look at goals saved above expectation at minus 16. I mean, you can't, you know, he's he's done a lot for the Red Wings over the last decade, but the bottom has clearly fallen out this year. Yep. And it's, it's never, uh, you know, it's never pretty to watch a guy who has such a kind of a legacy in, in a city, um, kind of live the the transition in a I don't know whatever you want to call it um, in in a starting role situation, but I, I think we may be watching it right now. Yeah, I mean it's very clearly playing out, and honestly, his you can argue that there's maybe a positive light to that, and that 
by him struggling so much this season and the Wings only having Bernier, it's really put an emphasis on the Wings needing to fix their goaltending situation in that short-term period because, you know, one of the thoughts was, hey, maybe you could just re-sign Jimmy Howard for another one to two years at the end of this year and he would be that bridge. But I think with the bottom completely falling out, you've seen Iserman's hand get forced a little bit by making that Eric Comrie trade uh, earlier in the year. And now Comrie actually hits waivers again the other day and the Wings elect not to to place a claim on him even though they would have been able to automatically send him to Grand Rapids we know that now uh, because no other team did put in a claim on him yeah I think that pretty much tells you what they thought of what they saw out of him even though he only you know he played two games you know they certainly saw him in practice as well and um, I mean the Jeff Blasio quote the day that they waived him I think was pretty uh pretty damning where he he said you know made the move with eyes wide open I don't know that uh after that, I, did, I certainly didn't expect him to claim him after that. Um, so they, they don't opt to to keep him, obviously. Um, do you think there's – is it a big – they, they gave up Billy Sarajevi to get Eric Comrie. Is that something that you'll lose any sleep over? I don't necessarily think I will. And I think, you know, you and I touched on this very early in the season that one of the big questions for the Red Wings was how were they going to manage their defensive logjam because they brought over Gustav Lindstrom – they had added Oliver Kasky. They had, you know, brought over Moritz Sider to Grand Rapids. Uh, there were so many guys that needed minutes in Grand Rapids. And now I think what you're starting to see is as the season's gone on, Steve Eiserman said, all right, these are the guys who I think are going to be the guys that have potential to play beyond this season in Detroit. And these are the guys I need to move out to make minutes for other guys I want to look at. And you've seen that with Oliver Kasky getting sent over uh, to to Charlotte in, in the Carolina Hurricanes organization in exchange for a, a defenseman, Kyle Wood, who's been a little bit more suited to the AHL level. You've seen now Billy Sariarvi, a guy who for years has really struggled to move his way up the ladder in the Red Wings organization. He got stuck in Toledo for a little while. He never really built off of his great season in Flint. Uh, and so... He, you know, he was a guy that became expendable, particularly when you have Moritz Sider, Gustav Lindstrom, you have guys like Albert Johansson and uh, Auntie Tuamista coming in. And each year you're bringing in new guys that are coming in with that younger age, fresher pedigree and, and kind of a potentially higher ceiling than what Sariari presented at this point in time. So, no, you know, he did become expendable. You took a shot at fixing your goaltending situation. It didn't work. You don't lose any sleep over that. Yep, I think that's probably fair. Uh, all right, away from the NHL now, which I'm sure will be a relief to all listening, and on to the World Juniors. Uh, have you been watching much of them? Yeah, I've gotten to catch a little bit. I was at work for the first couple, so I had to watch some of the YouTube replays, so I didn't necessarily catch full games for him. But, man, it's uh, that Group B has been a lot of fun, Group B being the U.S., Czech Republic, Germany, Canada, and Russia. I mean, it's real tight right now. It is. At one point, everyone was one and one, and that you know the U.S. I think beat uh, beat Russia three one today. Was that the final? Yeah, it was three one. Was the final? So now the U.S. in first and somewhat in the driver's seat. I think Canada, uh, even though they have a lopsided goal differential after getting shelled by Russia, can um, I think they can overtake the U.S. if it gets into a direct tie just on the head to head. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, when it was one-to-one, you were basically talking about every team had a win over the other team. I mean, you had the Czech Republic had beat Russia, but then Germany had beat the Czech Republic, but then the USA had beat Germany, but then Canada had beat 
the USA, but then Russia beat Canada, and now you're working your way all the way back around. And so it's a wide open field, but yeah, I mean, Canada still has the potential to overtake, and no team in Group B has a significant lead in goal differential. In fact, Russia, who is now sitting last in Group B, is tied with Team USA, who is first in Group B for the best group uh, goal differential in that group, and goal differential, again, being an important tiebreaker for seeding positions. So that group is still wide open, and we've got a nice slate of games for tomorrow, uh, particularly, and by tomorrow being Monday, uh, with Germany-Canada kind of kicking that one off. Yeah, if if the game hasn't happened, if it's before 9 a.m. or I guess really before 11 a.m. Eastern time uh, when you're listening to this, flip over to NHL Network and, and watch Germany-Canada. Uh, Joe Valeno will not be in it, coincidentally, after being suspended for a headbutt that we will certainly talk about in a minute. Uh, Alexi Lafreniere, I don't believe, is expected to play after uh, what was an initially looked like a very scary injury that it sounds now like maybe won't be quite as bad as feared, and I think... Every Red Wings fan in the world exhaled a little bit at that news because he's a guy the Red Wings are potentially going to be looking at, uh, potentially as high as first overall in this draft. He looked outstanding against the United States, but you'll nonetheless be able to see Moritz Sider play against a pretty stacked uh, Canada roster. I think that's pretty much must-watch for Red Wings fans. Yeah, I mean, Moritz Sider has been an absolute stud, and we'll talk more about him in a little bit, but... You have to tune into that one. Well, let's just talk about him now. I mean, he's he's been on the ice basically half of Germany's minutes so far. I think he's averaging around 26 minutes a night, something like that. Yeah, 26.01 on the night uh, per game. And so that's in Germany's two games. And so his 26.01 average is about two and a half minutes more than the next closest guy uh, at the World Juniors, so he is being an absolute workhorse. I mean, you're talking about what the time on ice used to look like back when Nick Lindstrom was playing in the NHL, and he would get 28 minutes a night, and then the next guy was sitting there at 25 minutes. It's a similar breakdown right now at the World Juniors with Sider chewing up, you know, half the game for Germany. And honestly, he's a big reason why the Germans have looked competitive. Yeah, I mean, Germany's given up nine goals in two games. Uh, a, a Detroit Red Wings level, you know, uh, input, I guess you'd call that. <laughs> uh, and yet Moritz Sider, despite playing half of their minutes, has only been on the ice for one of those goals against, and it was a penalty kill. And I believe he blocked a shot on that penalty kill and the, you know, just couldn't get it cleared before the United States pounced on it. That's pretty impressive. I don't know that I've heard of anything like that where a guy plays that much, a team gets scored on that much, and yet it doesn't overlap hardly at all. Yeah, I mean, you're basically saying that eight of the nine goals that Germany has given up have come up in the other half of the game when Sider is not on the ice, uh, which is exactly what Wings fans were hoping for when he was drafted. I think basically his his defensive awareness, his defensive thinking, his hockey IQ, these were all aspects of the game that were really touted for him. And so I think that's what everyone was banking on. But I think what's been more exciting for me is the offensive component to his game. And so right now, Germany's power play is the best power play at the World Juniors. They've scored five goals on 11 chances. They're basically averaging, you know, 19 goals per 60 minutes of power play time, which is just an absurd amount of scoring. And he's got assists on three of those five goals, and he's been a huge part of that power play as he's been the quarterback there. I think the first power play goal that Germany scored against the Czech Republic it's hard to say what his intention was, but it almost looked like the old Nick Lindstrom shoot it intentionally wide, let the puck come off the end boards, and let your guy in front 
uh, tapped that puck in. It looked very similar to that play. Hard to say what Sider's true intentions were there. But he's looked outstanding quarterback in the power play, and he's actually tied for second in assists among the World Juniors players at four. Yeah, Trevor Zegers uh, far and away leading the pack there. I think he's got seven through through three games, though. I think he's got an extra game. He's looked unreal. But, yeah, Moritz Sider, the offensive component there, if you asked me coming into this tournament what was a realistic points total for Moritz Sider at the end of the tournament to be, I might have said like four or five because I, I didn't know how much Germany was going to score, period. Sider's, uh, you know, I think he has offense in his game, but I didn't know – you know, who knows how much it's going to translate in a tournament where they're not really expected to have um, as close of a talent margin to most of these teams they're playing. Now, granted, three of them did come against Czech Republic. That was the game that we always thought they were going to be able to score a little bit in. Uh, but he's already getting close to what I would have thought would have been a fair expectation production-wise for him coming in. He's got a chance. If, if he can end this tournament with a, with a point per game as a defenseman, especially if he's able to keep up the defensive play he's had through these first couple of games he's got a chance i would think at the all-tournament team yeah i mean i think right now it's hard to say that any defenseman has been better than him uh, i think right now he would squarely sit on my all-tournament team as the first defenseman i would put on there uh just with how solid how all around his game has looked i mean he, he's looking like the real deal, and I think this is what you wanted. You wanted a guy to be like him to be able to step in and dominate at his age group, and he's done that through the first two games. And so we'll, there's more to come. He's still got a number of challenges ahead of him. We're going to see how he looks against Canada. You know, He's still got to go up against Russia, a couple of really good teams. And then if Germany does find a way to advance, there's a chance where he goes up against the powerhouse of Finland, which has scored... 17 goals in three games. I mean, he's he's still got a couple more opportunities to look good, but he's thus far passed the fir- the test of the first two games. Death, taxes, Finland in international tournaments, the only three certainties in life. Um, I'm excited to see Sider against Russia because his physical play is going to be, I think, tested by that Russian team. I'd like to see him go into a corner with Vasily Podkolzin and, and just see what happens there. I mean, that's going to be that's going to be a game for him to really test himself, I think. Yeah, I mean, both then and then the size of Canada. I yeah. think Canada's got a lot of really big forwards, and so I think he's really going to have, you know, his money uh, cut out for him. He's going to have his uh, he's going to have his hands full. I mean, when he has to go in the corner with six foot four Quentin Byfield coming in there, or another one of the big Canadian wingers, or even some of their other big centers. I mean, there's a lot of size on Team Canada, and a lot of speed, and a lot of skill, and so. I think the next two games are going to be particularly telling for for Sider, although he looked good against the U.S. and he had a really solid game against the Czech team that Germany needed to beat. Yeah, I think when I when you see how much he played against the U.S., they gave up six goals to the U.S. He's only on the ice, like we said, for the one. Um, that was the pretty early indication that he's going to be able to, to some extent, really be a factor even against uh, really high-powered teams. And let's not shortchange the rest of Germany's roster, by the way. They've looked really good as a team. I mean, the, the guys up front, Stutzel, uh, Lucas Reichel, J.J. Paterka, and obviously Dominic Bach, uh, certainly more than more than carrying their share of the load for Germany, too. Yeah, I mean, the German team has been one of the more pleasant surprises for me because they've just been a lot of fun to watch. Honestly, the first 40 minutes of that Germany-USA game, I was, you know, my my jaw was dropped because of how quickly Germany attacked the U.S. team 
off of any turnover right around that offensive blue line. The transition game from Germany was just outstanding. You saw the playmaking capabilities of Tim Stutzel, uh, who's projected to be a top five pick in this year's draft. You're seeing the, the scoring ability of J.J. Paterka, the scoring ability of Lucas Reichel, and then Dominic Bach, who is a 2018 first-round draft pick, who's now in the Carolina Hurricanes organization. He's been probably Germany's best overall forward uh, with three goals and two assists, playing almost 17, 18 minutes a night uh, in the first two games for Germany. He's just been an outstanding forward. And so the Germans are coming. I mean, they're starting to develop a really world-class hockey program. And sooner rather than later, with the emergence of Cider, with, you know, Bach and, and Stutzel and all of these guys, you're going to see a lot of German talent uh, hit the NHL, and that's only going to inspire more kids to pick up the sticks. So they're a team to watch over the next five to ten years. Yep, absolutely. Uh, elsewhere in the tournament, the Red Wings prospects haven't been quite as successful, though. If there was a guy you were going to point to, uh, it'd probably be Jonathan Berger, and he's got a couple assists in two games. And probably more importantly, he found himself uh, all over the highlight reel against Switzerland. Yeah, I mean, Bergen had a real nifty move. If you haven't had a chance, you can, I'm sure you could scope it out on Twitter where he basically has a nice end to end rush where he pulls the puck between his legs and is almost able to, uh, score on the shot. He gets a great chance out of it, but you can really see the elite skill level there. Um, you know, he's again getting a fair amount of minutes. He's getting about 15 minutes a night. Not really shooting the puck a whole lot, but I think his game is going to be more as a playmaker. So uh, he's getting a good chance over on Team Sweden, and they're going to be a team to watch in the medal round. Yeah, and I, I retweeted a few of them if you guys are looking for the Bergen clips. But, you know, it's not just the the little skill plays. He's, the passes show up, too. He had a couple of really nice passes from behind the net that both should have resulted in goals. One of them did on an assist to, I think it was Lucas Raymond. And then he had another one that he put back door. I don't know if that was to Holtz or who it was, uh, but it was in the mold of that Zegris assist that, that went viral where you take it behind the net and kind of make a quick pivot and throw it back to the post that you're basically leaving. Um, really nice play and, and, and really shows why, you know, I think on this show especially, we've talked a lot about Bergeron as a guy who maybe because he's not in the U.S. or in North America, uh, it's hard for people to see him. But I think, certainly, and I, I think we agree, he's, he's a guy who will probably factor in for the Red Wings. Maybe not immediately, because he's kind of small, but uh, down the line for sure. So, Max, I'm going to throw you a question here to put you on the spot. Sure. Is Jonathan Berggren the best forward not on the Detroit Red Wings right now in their system? Ooh. I'm... <clears throat> I'm, I don't think so. I'm inclined to stick with Michael Rasmussen, which might not be a popular answer because I don't think he's going to score as much as Berger necessarily. I think he's just a more complete player. You can use him in every situation. He'll be great on the power play at the net, but he's not far off. I, I think he's really talented. I, maybe the certainty aspect of Rasmussen factors in there too. Uh, he might have the highest upside though. Yeah. I mean, I kind of, lean that way too where I think Berggren has the highest upside and I think the important thing to remember is he's playing over in the Swedish Hockey League which arguably is right on par with the AHL maybe even slightly better but the leagues are relatively comparable and you can make a case that Berggren's in the tougher league and he's having an excellent season thus far and so he should be very ready to come over and you know my expectation is he comes over for next season and he's likely starts the year in Grand Rapids, but I think of 
all of the Red Wings forward prospects not in the NHL right now, so Philip Zadina is not included. I think Jonathan Bergeron is the most talented forward they have in their system, and I think he's got the highest upside and the highest likelihood of being a scoring top six winger uh, that the Red Wings sorely need at this point in time. I'm really curious how they handle his development because for basically it seems like ever the the plan with Euros is at some point when you deem him ready, you bring him over, you, you turn their development over to the AHL. Would you hear an argument for leaving Bergen in the SHL until you think he's ready for the NHL, especially if you're talking about the AHL and SHL being fairly comparable leagues, or does the need to get used to the small ice win the day for you? I think it's a bit overstated how important the small ice is. I, I know there are people who talk about, well, you know, you have a little bit less wit to work with, and therefore the game plays a little bit faster. Um, you know, the, I don't I don't know that that's as important as people make it out to be. Now, again, I'm saying this just off the top of my head, not with any sort of data or statistics to back that up. But, you know, to me, it's, it's what I would bring him to the AHL in the same season that I thought he could transition to the NHL. I would not bring him in the AHL to commit him to a full AHL year like the Wings are going to do with Joe Valeno. Like Heading into the season, you could have felt pretty confident that Joe Valeno was not going to play a significant minutes in the NHL sure. uh, this this season. And so if that's the case, I'm not bringing Bergeron over for that. But if it's the case where I want to see what Bergeron can do in a, in a sample in the AHL before I make my decision of am I promoting him or leaving him, I think that's fine, but I would do it with a mindset of recognizing he may have a shot at a roster spot in the NHL. I'm factoring him in to my potential NHL players, and therefore I'm going to bring him over to the AHL. And it makes sense, too, because I don't think you, you can't really get him in training camp unless you know you, you have the potential to be in the NHL because he's not going to sign away from Sweden to intentionally go to the AHL or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. Like, why, you know, the incentive for him to just come over is going to be he wants to make this NHL team. Yeah. So I would like to see them just let him do all the developing that they feel he needs in Sweden where he's comfortable. Um, I know that's a little different than some cases, but I think he's kind of the, the, I don't know what, what you'd call it, the perfect example for this of, of a guy whose game will play better in Sweden and in the NHL than I think it will in the AHL just because of the style of play. I think the AHL is a great league. I'm not sure that the typical kind of uh, structure of the game is the one that would fit Bergeron the best. I think he's going to do best in situations where you can wheel around the Ozone. Uh, and I know it's harder to do that in the NHL than uh, than Sweden too, but I also think the maybe guys are in more predictable spots in the NHL than they are in the AHL. And for a guy with that kind of vision, that kind of sense, um, that's going to put him in the best position to succeed. So for me, I think I'd probably leave him over uh, in Sweden until you you think he's got a shot. But I agree with you. You can't ever promise a guy a spot in the NHL. So if he ends up spending some time in the AHL, that's uh, that's what it is too. Yeah, I think you know we'll see. But I think next season would be a good time to bring him over. Yeah, that's perfectly fair. Uh, let's see, who else we got to get through here? Let's get to Valeno. I thought he looked pretty good against the U.S., uh, not so noticeable against Russia, but that probably, you could say the same for about half of the For every Canadian roster. player. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Russia dominated them. Yeah, that was just a game out of left field. I mean, no one was awake for Team Canada there. I don't know what what was going on, but the, the encouraging thing is while Valeno is not lighting up the score sheet, he has just one assist through the first two games. 
he's clearly earned the trust of Canada's coach Dale Hunter because he is actually leading Canada in minutes played. More than any defenseman, more than any forward, he's playing almost uh, a little over 19 minutes a night uh, for them, which is more than, again, anybody else on that roster. And so he's very clearly earned the trust uh, of the Canadian head coaching, uh, or the head coach and the, uh, the rest of the staff. And so that's why it's going to be a huge loss for Canada to not have him available um, against uh, Germany on, on Monday. And so that'll be a big problem for them because they're going to be missing both him and Alexi Lafreniere, two of their guys who've been on the top line for them. So that that's going to be a big issue. But, you know, beyond that, he's getting the minutes. He's played well defensively, I thought. He's winning face-offs. He's about 58%, which is 12th in the World Juniors. He's shooting the puck. He's got six shots on goal. But, you know, we'll see what it looks like once he's back uh, after the one-game suspension. What did you think of the decision to suspend him? I mean, it, it, it looked like a pretty soft headbutt, if you will. It wasn't really much of a headbutt. It was more just kind of like, you know, when a guy tends to put his helmet, you know, right on another guy. By definition, is it a headbutt? Yes. By definition, is it a suspendable plight? Yes. In the grand scheme of things, I don't know that that's one I would have called routinely, and I don't know that's one that would get called routinely, but I can see why the decision was made. I can see why they suspended him for a game. I don't know that I necessarily agree that was suspension-worthy, though. Yeah, it definitely wasn't a Zinedine Zidane moment for Valeno there. Right, he didn't come up and headbutt the dude right in the chest. He literally, you know, tapped his helmet on the Russian player's helmet. The Russian player didn't even react uh, to it. Now, is it a headbutt? Yes, but it, it just didn't seem to be any a real malicious play, if you will. I will say, though, like, you got to be smarter than that if you're Valeno. Like, you just can't take that chance. You know what I mean? It's heat of the moment, whatever, I get that. Uh, I, You know, does it look suspendable? Not at first blush, but I guess I don't know. If you don't suspend it, where are you going to draw the line on on the force of impact, on how much a guy gets injured? Like I, I don't have an issue with them suspending him for this because I think it was just a really, you know, I don't I don't know what to call it, you know. Yeah, I mean, is it a headbutt? Yes. Is it therefore suspendable? Right. Yes. And so I can totally see why they made the decision to. But you know, is it a malicious looking play? Probably not. But I think the bigger issue is for Canada to have one Valeno their alternate captain gets suspended for a headbutt. And then two, you have your captain Barrett Hayton not taking his helmet off for the national anthem. I mean, that's just kind of a, it's a little disappointing from the Canadian player. Did he get suspended for that? He didn't get suspended for it, but he got sternly chewed out publicly. And I'm sure, I'm sure privately for that because yes, he's a 19 year old kid, but that's kind of an inexcusable move to not take your helmet off for the national anthem after a game. And so, uh, disappointing, at least from those two guys on the Canadian leadership. Did you see the uh, the quotes that Igor Zamula from Russia gave? Uh, Scott Wheeler had him in his story today about Zamula. I don't think I saw those. Let, let me read this to you. He says it's an unbelievable game, and that some of these are in parentheses, so I'll just take them as they are. Coach talked after the first period and said, "Keep going, boys. Canada, I think, is scared of you." Canada looked like shit today, and Russia dominated this game. It's the best time in my life right now. That's unreal. <laughs> That's amazing. So Canada was feeling themselves. Uh, I think they probably got in Russia's or, uh, Sorry, Russia was feeling themselves. I think they probably got in Canada's head. Uh, and you wonder if that's what happened when, when Valeno, I guess, decides to do that. Again, I don't think it looked that bad, but it, I also don't have a problem with them suspending it because 
You shouldn't have just put yourself. You shouldn't have headbutted someone. You know, even if it was a I mean, weak you have, one. You have to suspend it. You have uh, exactly. to suspend it, even though it's not malicious. A hundred percent. So, but it is a tough break for Red Wings fans who are going to want to watch uh, watch him playing as Moritz Sider and. Who knows what this does? Did, didn't somebody who got suspended last? McIsaac miss a game last year for a suspension. I think he uh, did. I believe he missed high a hit. game for a suspension last year. Yeah, it was a high hit, and I know he had another one that was looked at, but I think he did miss one for a high hit last year. He's been pretty invisible this tournament for a guy who's playing basically second pair minutes, eighteen minutes a night. The only time you've really noticed him really prominently was on a turnover that led to a Russia goal. Yeah, and, and maybe part of it is he's still working back from his injury. He only got three games in uh, when he came back from shoulder surgery prior to the tournament. So part of it is is likely him working his way back into game shape, game speed, uh, the flow of the game. But, yeah, he's he's not been able to contribute on the scoreboard. He's logging a lot of minutes, you know, a little over 18 minutes a night. He's got four shots on goal, but hasn't really been able to impact the game in a meaningful way outside of the bad turnover leading to a Russia goal. Yeah, I think my comment to, in, the, in the story I wrote about what to expect from Red Wings' prospect of this tournament was the only reason to be concerned, because it's such an unknown how he'll look after the injuries if he doesn't look like himself. I'm not sure that he's looked like himself, but it hasn't been, I guess, that blatant of, like, who is this guy? Uh, so I... I don't know if you're pressing the panic button yet, but you'd like to see McIsaac lay a couple big hits, make a couple big stops, uh, and maybe add an assist or two before this thing's over if, if you're going to feel good about his tournament. I don't know that it's trending in a great direction so far. Yeah, it's been a couple of games, and you know now he's five games back from his injury. I think I'd like to see how he looks the rest of the way uh, before making a sweeping conclusion on him, but it's certainly concerning that he's not been able to really play his game and I don't know if part of it's him guarding the shoulder or because uh, he's usually known to throw a couple of bigger hits and we just haven't really seen him do much of anything on the ice thus far. Jesper Eliasson, goalie for Sweden, has not yet gotten in the game. Your review of how he has fared riding the bench so far? You know, he's looked real good doing it. He has, I believe he's dressed, but he hasn't actually played and that's kind of what we expected with Tampa's prospect Hugo on the felt. Uh, getting the starts both games there you know he I think he wears the ball cap really well and and he's got a real good glove hand when the puck comes into the bench so there's not really much more you can ask for the from your backup goaltender and that's why you listen to wings for breakfast folks uh quick run through the the key top prospects and then we'll get to the listener questions you got any opinions on Alexi Lafreniere before he went down he looked amazing in the U.S. game. I thought he was all over the ice. He had four points. He was he was everywhere. But, um, yeah, the injury certainly dampened everything, but it sounds like he, he has a shot to be back in the rest of the tournament at some point. Um, so hopefully, you know, Wings fans get to see him there. But even if he doesn't come back this tournament, he looked real good, good enough for, to where everyone should feel comfortable taking him first overall. Byfield's been on the quieter side, though. He was, again, leading up to this challenging Lafreniere. He's gotten a fair amount of minutes, about 12, 13 minutes a night, but hasn't been able to find his way on the score sheet. Hasn't even been able to get a shot on goal yet. So that's been a little bit disheartening for him. Meanwhile, over on the Swedish team, uh, both Holt and Raymond have got a goal and an assist. They've both played identical amount of minutes, about 13, 24 a night. Holtz has actually generated a few more shots. He's got five shots on goal. Raymond's got two, but both, I think, have looked relatively decent. The guy who's really surprised me, and again, I'm not really sure 
what I was expecting from him is Yaroslav Askarov, the, the Russian goalie who's played two games for Russia and actually got pulled against the Czech Republic after two periods when he gave up four goals. But he's sitting with an 826 save percentage right now, 4.24 goals against average. Um, and he didn't start in the shutout that Russia had against Canada. So it's a little, it's a little surprising that he struggled this much. It's important to remember that he is a double underager here. And these are guys that are a lot older than him. Um, but you know, it's, it does speak a little bit to how, how you should feel about taking him maybe top five and why I don't know that if I only have one first round pick, I don't know that I'm going to burn it on this guy, but. More to come. I think the KHL games will be more telling than the World Junior games, but certainly a couple of rough starts for him. And then the other guy I've absolutely loved is Tim Stutzel out in Germany. I think the trio, like we've talked about, Stutzel, Reichel, and Paterka, I think all three draft eligible this year. I think Stutzel is going to be a slam dunk top five pick. Honestly, if the Wings do fall to fourth, which is their most likely pick, I'd have no problems taking him and and slotting him in as a top-line winger because he looks that skilled. He's had so many great highlights. If, you, if you're if you bored on a Monday and you're looking for some stuff to do, type in Tim Stutzel DEL highlights and, and see some of the moves he's pulled off this year in a men's league. I've been really impressed with his skating. Uh, but on Askarov, like, I know you weren't ever really in the camp that thought he was – uh, should be a consideration with a top four pick, but are you really that turned off by one game? Like you're that worried about the one, the one rough game as a double? I'm not worried agent? about. Like I'm not going to say that. Maybe this is more confirmation bias for me than anything else. I was never going to take him with a top five pick. I was never going to take him with a top ten pick. And so for me, seeing him struggle for a couple of games, I'm going to say, yeah, that that makes total sense because I wasn't going to take him there anyways. But no, I mean the the point is valid that he's a double underager here, uh, meaning he's two years younger. And he's, he's, you know, playing goalie's not like that's the easier position. You know, being a skater, you can kind of hide on the ice. You've got 11 other guys, uh, all around you. Being the goalie, when that puck's coming at you, you gotta make the save. And, you know, so I'm not gonna be turned off by two games here, but I, I do think the KHL games the rest of the way will be a little bit more telling because obviously the KHL does pose far better competition than, uh, the World Juniors does, but it is, you know, when I'm framing him relative to who I'm going to draft around him, I would rather take the surer bet than maybe spend that top pick on Askarov, although I'm not necessarily using these two games to heavily sway my opinion one way or another. I wasn't going to take him to the top 10, regardless of if he shut out every team this the rest of the way. The debate I'm curious about, and I saw quite a few tweets after the USA-Canada game, that were like, well, it's settled. Like Lafreniere looks, you know, world's better than Byfield. He should be number one. He, Lafreniere looked unreal that game. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I also think people are maybe hugely underrating the effect of Byfield being two games into his World Junior career and almost a full year younger than Lafreniere. Like Lafreniere was at this tournament last year as a double underager, as Byfield is now. Even though they're the same draft year, Byfield can play in two more of these tournaments. Lafreniere can only play in one more, even though he won't because he'll be in the NHL this time next year. Um, but eligibility-wise, they could. I, I think people are maybe quite a bit underrating the impact of that and, and having been to this tournament before and what it does for your ability to control the play, know what the pace is going to be, all of those things. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, folks have to remember, Byfield doesn't turn uh, 18 for another eight months. 
well so after the draft. He is just barely. Yeah. He is just barely in this draft class. Like he's two weeks away from being in next year's draft class. That's how young this guy is. Like he, four months ago, he turned seventeen. So he's just barely in this class. Um, so I think that's a huge point to bring up. This is his first experience here. He's getting you know a fair amount of minutes, twelve, thirteen minutes a night. Um, he's obviously not getting the same talent that Lafreniere is getting. Lafreniere has that year of experience to draw on. Uh, so I think that is very huge when you're trying to compare these two guys. And again, I wouldn't use these two games from Lafreniere and Byfield to sway what you thought about their 30 games leading up to this. Yeah, so, or even all seven. These like, are whole tournament. Yeah. Do not let this this World Junior. You can use it to get some reps on these guys and some see what they do well. Don't use it to make your your rankings, guys. I mean, year after year, people continue to overrate players based on World Juniors' performances. And five years after, you end up with Casey Middlesat in Buffalo, and you're really upset with yourself. But, hey, you took him because of his World Juniors' performance, even if you don't admit it now, and now you're stuck with it. So, folks, do not use seven games against competition, even though it may be slightly better than what they each individually face in their own leagues. Do not use those seven games to to sway your opinion over one for one guy over another. Yep. Think think down the road. That's all. That's all you got to do. All right, we're going to listener questions now. Uh, first one is from Liz Lemon, presumably the Liz Lemon. She asks, uh, you think they consider trading Bernier this season, they being the Red Wings, maybe try to move him while he's playing well, even if he does still have a season left on the current contract. Any thoughts on this one? Oh, man, trading Jonathan Bernier would be totally terrifying. <laughs> uh I'm, I'm, I never thought I would say those words, but trading Jonathan Bernier would be totally terrifying because now you're talking about rolling with Jimmy Howard and Calvin Pickard for the rest of the season, and that's a tandem that I don't know if you could... I don't know if they could hold any team right now under four goals. Um, you know, it's been several games since Howard's done that, and right now, Bernier's your only goalie... Uh, only NHL-level goalie, I should say. Calvin Pickard, while he's still up with the team, um, is technically AHL in my mind. Bernier's under contract for next year. Howard's not. Pickard is under contract for next year, but you certainly don't want him to be the guy that you're thinking about being your starter for next season. So I think you entertain it simply because you're the Red Wings, and right now you have to entertain any trade proposal. Um but if you move Bernier, now you're looking for conceivably two goalies this offseason as opposed to just one. And, and I think that's a scary proposition to try and replace both your goaltenders uh, and recognizing that you're going to basically commit five, six million to goalies this offseason. Yeah, here's one of the reasons that having a goalie situation as, what do you call it, confusing as the Red Wings is right now, bad, whatever you want to call it, uh, you have to overvalue Jonathan Bernier if you're the Detroit Red Wings because the alternative, like Bouchard said, is is like it's scary, which is crazy to say for a guy whose save percentage is, what, 900 flat after tonight, something like that? Yeah. Like, he's been so far and away their best goalie this year that if without him, like, you are screwed. And, and this is something with a... I mean, I guess you're screwed anyway is, is the logic, but and he's only got one more year. He's not going to be with you while you're good. But especially if you talk about the, the morale effects, the effects of just having a prayer to win a game before puck drop, like that I really think it does matter to, to how much guys are able to develop. One of the problems when you start rebuilding is maybe 
you sell off everything of some value. And I guess as long as you're getting good value in return, it's all good. Uh, but I think about like the Gustav Nyquist trade, and, and maybe in the end it'll turn out to have been worth it. Maybe Albert Johansson's a stud, and it's all good. But um, y- you think about, I mean, and you had to. You, he was a guy that you were going to have to pay this off season. Maybe that one, maybe that's not a perfect comparison. But you start giving away all these pieces for guys who are. It's, it's just a prayer. If you're trading Bernie for like a second round pick, you're just trading him for a prayer. And what you're sacrificing isn't just a, a goalie. You're sacrificing basically the only guy who's been able to steal you a game or give you a chance to steal a game this whole season. I know the wins don't matter, but I got to think that still does. Yeah, and I mean, look, look, you're the Red Wings. You have to listen to every offer. Of so course, if a team's going to come and they're going to drop a second round pick for Jonathan Bernier. You've got to seriously consider it and. You know, have teams replace both their goaltenders in a single season? Yes, it is doable. Are there enough goaltenders available this year to do it? Yes, there are. There's plenty of goaltenders out there that you can do it with. But the proposition of having to aggressively shop for goalies uh, to replace them is a little scary. Uh, you know, as I'm thinking about it more and more, if you start with the mindset that most goaltending uh, is relatively similar. And what I mean by that is the variance between the very best goalies and the very worst goalies is not so substantial that you couldn't interchange a lot of these goalies. And so that's why if someone does come in and says, hey, I'm going to give you a second round pick for Jonathan Bernier, you can say, fine, I'm going to make that deal recognizing that you've got the ability to replace his talent in all likelihood from free agency, from the from another trade or whatnot, but the scary point that I think you're bringing up, Max, is you know if you move him at the rest of the season, I don't know that you could say Detroit's going to win it more than a couple more games the rest of the way, and at some point that's got to take a huge toll on the team. And even next season, depending on what you end up doing, I mean this is going to take a huge toll mentally. So I think you listen. I think if you get a deal like a second or even a third round pick, I think you have to seriously entertain making it. But recognizing that you are basically throwing away the one piece that's keeping you marginally competitive right now. Yeah, if you trade him, it's got to be for, in my opinion, it's got to be for at least a second, and you got to commit to signing a guy who can start 50 games for you next year in the offseason. And if you cannot check both of those boxes, I don't think you can do it. And, it, and you probably can't do it until, like, well, I guess you can do it now. It's probably January, and you can limp to the finish line if you want to. Uh, what difference does it make? But it, it's going to put you in a rough spot this offseason. Like any goalie who you go in to talk to is going to have all the leverage because you need them bad. Yeah, I mean, and you, not only do you need one, you probably need two. And so, you, you know, it's going to be really, really tough. I mean, there's a handful of goalies out there we've talked about. Uh, you know, Cam Talbot, we've talked about Thomas Grice. You know, Anton Hudobin could certainly... Uh, suffice for a couple of games, uh, but it's it's just a big, terrifying place uh, to be in if you do move Bernier for the rest of the season. Yep, absolutely. All right, this one's a little off the wall. I'm going to take it in a little different direction than the uh, person asking it intended, which I think is a point on the Wings for Breakfast drinking game. So drink up. Uh, they ask, <laughs> let's. It's, it's a screenshot of a of a tankathon simulation, and it puts the Red Wings in the the number one pick. And Ottawa via San Jose's pick in the number two slot, which means Ottawa slides down to sixth. Uh, and so Ottawa basically gets the second and the sixth pick. The question is if you could guarantee this, or what would you rather be, Detroit or Ottawa, in that situation? So basically, you get the first pick, or you can have the second and the sixth. To me, I think 
that part's a no-brainer. Can we agree that you'd rather be Ottawa there? Yeah, you, in this year's draft class, you would absolutely rather be Ottawa. Now, I've got a twist on this, and I was discussing this with a friend recently about a potential like tweak to the lottery system. And I think you'd have to do a little more than just one tweak to make it work. But for hypothetical's sake, let's say that they expand the lottery to the top four picks are determined by lottery. And as a trade-off to that, to the number one or the worst team, I guess, in the league, you give the worst the team with the worst record the option before the lottery begins to guarantee themselves the third pick in the draft. So basically, you rule out your chance of picking one, you rule out your chance of picking two, uh, but you know you're not going to pick fourth or fifth. Would that be a useful fix to the system? Would it be more fun? Would you? What would you do if offered that choice as the Detroit Red Wings? You know, I think the way that you'd have to approach this is first understand what the odds would be for each of those four teams in the lottery. Because uh, I think that would strongly influence, you know, my decision. Because, you know, as it stands right now, where you have 15 teams – uh, in the lottery, Detroit's basically sitting at an 18.5% chance for first overall, which is pretty puny, and their most likely pick is actually fourth overall. Call it 15, uh, 15, 10, 10, a uh, 50, and then 50 for the fifth. So, wait, so how how is that going to work with who, like, how's, so are only the top four teams in competition for the first overall pick? Uh that's where I got to figure it out because, like, if it's if you're basically telling me I've got a fifty percent chance because I'm thinking in my head maybe it's like a a fifty twenty five ten five model, then I'm probably going to stick with my I'm going to I'm going to play out that lottery because I got a fifty fifty shot versus well, having no. to sit at third. The um, um, no, no, I'm saying those are your odds of each pick. Like you know how it's like it's like eighteen. Maybe it had to be a little different because you can't have first and second be identical. But uh, right now, I think it's something like 18, 16, 15, 50 or something like that. Or 19, 16, whatever, whatever adds up to like 40 or 49. Yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. 49.4 is one. That's right, that's 50. right. 50.6 is the other. Yeah, so, so whatever that would be, they would add up to perfectly 50-50. Your odds of getting the fifth pick would be 50, and one of the first four would be 50. Uh, or you can wipe it clean and take the third. No risk of falling to four or five, no chance of getting to one or two. Yeah, I think I'm still sticking in the one spot because the way you'd have to make the math work to lay out those lottery odds, you're still going to end up with um, a pretty solid uh, 30, 40 percent, uh, somewhere along those lines of being in that. If you're in that top spot, you're still going to end up with a solid chance at top two. Uh, even though those lottery odds are going to dwindle in such fashion, you, I think you're still going to end up with roughly a 40% chance uh, in the top two or three. So I, I would probably stick where I'm uh, at uh, as opposed to guaranteeing three because I think the percentages would probably play well enough, and I'd rather have that chance at the elite talent as opposed to dropping to three where I think the the diminishing returns as you're going from first to second to third to fourth to fifth, they continue to just get bigger and bigger. So. I'd probably maintain my opportunity in that type of scenario to to get the first overall pick. All right, how about if they left it at three lottery spots and you can guarantee yourself the second? So you're only ruling out first overall, but you're also taking out third or fourth out of the equation. This year, I think it's a no-brainer, yes, but across the board, maybe not. Yeah, I think most years I would still want to leave myself the opportunity to get uh, the first overall pick because I think the drop-off between one and two most years is generally larger than two and three. 
And that's the way I would approach it is that I would rather take one than be left with uh, having to take two as opposed to being able to, to take one. So I, I think I'd still lean with the opportunity to have the first overall pick with the way that math would work out. All right. I guess I don't have a future as an NHL rules maker. Uh, <laughs> Brandon asks, what are your thoughts on the deployment of Philip Zadina? Do you think he deserves more ice time than he's getting? And what are your thoughts on Nielsen Helm, Glendening being put out there in certain key situations over him? I've only seen Glendening out there in key situations over him uh, for what it's worth. I think Nielsen and Helm are on the same – or not Helm. Nielsen's on the same power play unit as Zadina. But nonetheless, what, what are, do you have any thoughts on Zadina's usage so far? I mean – He's certainly not getting a ton of minutes. He's sitting maybe 13, 14 minutes. You know, I made the point earlier in the show that since his call-up, he leads the team in scoring, and he leads the team in 5-of-5 expected goals for percentage per the evolving hockey model. You know, I certainly think he's made a compelling case for more ice time. Uh, How you get him that, I don't know, because I've already made a subtle point where I don't know that he's best playing with Larkin and... Bertuzzi, given that he's demonstrated some ability to be an independent play driver. So you'd ideally want him away from from those guys to be able to drive another line. Uh, and so then if you're not playing him on that top line, I don't know that you're able to get him more minutes. I mean, maybe in a perfect world he plays 15-16 instead of 13-14. But I don't know that I'm arguing – I don't know that that makes a huge difference for his overall development. And then as far as the, the key situations, I think – Likely what Brandon's referring to here is maybe the end of the game situations with the goalie pull. And I do think that's a situation where, you know, Detroit could maximize or use him a little bit more. Like, for example, against Tampa, he wasn't out there when the goalie was pulled. In fact, Glenn Denning stayed out there. And I do think Zadina gives you that more offensive upside uh, to play in that situation. But outside of that, I, I don't know that I can say that there's a lot wrong with it simply because I don't know how you're going to get him a ton more minutes. To me, I think it's probably about roles. Like, I think... You have guys who are playing the flanks already. Like I, I assume Glenn Denning is out there to do something specific that they would trust him to do more than Zadina. I don't know if that makes it better. I don't know if I'm saying that I think that's uh, the right call or something, but I think that's probably what it is. Like I don't think they have. I don't think they're telling Glenn Denning to do the same thing out there. That if if Zadina was out there, it'd be this. It'd be a one for one, and and thus obviously like Zadina's playmaking vision and shot. You know, kind of, kind of elevate him. Um, my guess is they have Glenn Denning there to go win a battle along the boards, which he does arguably better than anyone on the team. And obviously that's one of the ways they lost the game tonight is when they didn't have the puck on their tape, Tampa was getting the puck and getting it out of the zone. Um, he scored against Florida with the extra man. Does that justify it? I don't know. Maybe not. Either way, he, he does deserve more minutes. Like he's producing at a, at a pretty high rate and he's not been, I don't think, particularly sluggish away from the puck or anything. I think he got outshot attempted by quite a bit tonight, but on quality, he was even, you know, he was a a net positive for them. Yeah, I mean, he was second on the team when you come to quality. I mean, he was sitting at 63.6% with only Athanasio a little bit higher than him at 68%. So, you know, it's it's hard to argue against his results. He's doing everything that's asked of him. He's getting the best results. He's scoring the most points. Um it's what you want to see from him. And so now I think as the season progresses, uh, you have to reward him with kind of more and more opportunities and situations. And I think the wing staff is slowly bringing him along. Like when we were talking about pre-Christmas break, we were looking at, uh, you know, Zadina maybe playing 10, 11, 12. And so now the last couple of games, he's 13, 14. You know, we'll see. I think as the season goes on, expect him to get a slight uptick to where he's maybe sitting closer to, 
16, 17 minutes a night. This is not unexpected, though, right? This is how they do it with their young players. I'd... Right. This, they bring them along slow. Yep. So I don't know that I would expect massive changes, but I agree. That 15, 16-minute-a-night mark, uh, that seems pretty reasonable to me, especially with, with what his effort level has been. Uh, we'll hurry through these last couple. Um, Alex asks a hypothetical. If you could be the GM of any team for the next five years, who would be in your top three? Let's just jointly construct these because I don't think we both need a top three. Uh, and I'm not going to do bottom three because I I don't know if we have time. Uh, top three teams we'd want to be GMs of. Contenders. Ooh, top three like contender teams right now. No, like, yeah, like who are the contend- who are the contenders you'd want to be? GM? They don't have to be a contender right now. Like uh, if you want to be GM with the yeah. LA Kings, be my guest. But well, you know the LA Kings may not be a bad situation with their prospect pool. But I think for me, the clear cut team that I would take over would be Carolina. I think they're absolutely loaded right now with young players, and they're absolutely loaded with an outstanding prospect pool. Uh, so they'd probably be the top team that I would take. Uh, what about you, Max? Colorado with a bullet. Um, I think they've got the combination of a good young core, a couple of stellar young prospects. They've got their pick this year. I think that's the that's number one for me. Uh, Canes are a good one too, though. I'm trying to think if there's anyone sneaky. To me, three would be Edmonton because I want to have McDavid. Because okay. it's basically stop screwing up McDavid. Put something else around him and you will have success. And with the emergence of Dreisaitl playing just out of his mind this year, You've got two bona fide pieces that you're not going to get anywhere else. So I've locked that up. I just need to fix the supporting cast. So I would certainly take over Edmonton uh, to try and build around McDavid. That's not a bad one. Uh, and I don't think you want the cap headache of a team like Toronto, who's you know kind of another star-sitted situation, but maybe he's going to have a lot more to kind of manage over here in the next couple of years. How about Vegas? I mean, would you take Vegas? Yeah, I mean, Vegas is another solid team. I think their Vancouver? prospect pool maybe isn't... Yeah, Vancouver also has a decent prospect pool. I think for me, after those top three teams, I'm going to start picking at teams with prospect pools. And so that's when, you know, Los Angeles really f- factors in because they've got a great prospect pool. I think they did a really good job. Uh, so, you know, they're a team that I'd look at too. But, yeah, I think Vancouver, Vegas are other teams that you can make considerations for, and even Arizona. Um, has some prospects and they've made some good deals this year to get some some stronger players. So they're another team that you could certainly take over. And hey, the prize of the Ottawa Senators having two first round picks that are likely lottery picks, that's another compelling reason to take over them when you've got Eric Brandstrom there, Brady Kachuk, and now you're adding two top 10 picks likely. Uh, to the mix, I think that's another team that you'd have to strongly consider. Yeah, I think when all said and done, I settle on Carolina, Colorado, Vancouver. That's, I think, where I'm at. Yeah, and I'd probably be Carolina, Colorado, Edmonton. All right, that's fair. Bottom three, I guess we can take a crack at it. Minnesota, Columbus, uh, San Jose. Now, San Jose can still win one. I mean, they, they could, but they're awful, and their cap structure is bad, and their prospects are bad. So I think I'd probably keep San Jose down in the bottom. Winnipeg would also be down there for me, too. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. I, Columbus, I think, is probably the number one for me that I wouldn't want. Yeah. Yeah, I'd give you Columbus. I'd probably throw Winnipeg in there at two and and potentially, um, you know, Minnesota down there at three. Yeah. All right. That's good. All right. And then this last one I have to do because it is a friend of mine who uh, I'm going to see for a New Year's party in a couple of days. And if I don't answer it, I think I'm going to hear about it. Uh, it's from Allie. She asks, how do you think the game of hockey would change if the sticks were replaced with baguettes? 
uh, your thoughts, Prashanth? This would be uh, very interesting. I think what you end up seeing is a lot of, you know, in the All-Star game when the guys basically uh, turn their stick blades over and tow the puck, I think you'd get a lot more interesting pirouetting with the puck uh, if you if they had to use these long baguettes. It would also make slashing a hell of a lot more interesting. Yeah, I think my biggest thought is how would it change? It would uh, reduce the violence because if you cross-check someone, then your baguette snapped in half. Uh, I think that's it could be a good thing for the for the health and well-being of a lot of the players in the game. Of course, I think it would make scoring a goal uh, nigh impossible. Although it would introduce the idea of kind of like a lob pass to bunt shot. Uh, into the net. I think uh, goalies would would welcome this change. Everyone else not so much, but maybe it leads to a healthier uh, healthier group of players. So thank you. Allie. I mean, a cross check to the teeth <laughs> with, has a whole new meaning. Delicious. Now. I mean, that's, that's a favor. Tasty. That's tasty. That's a favor. That's right. All right. Uh, I think that's all I got. Anything else you want to talk about for the week ahead before we get going? The Red Wings obviously play New Year's Eve against the Sharks, and then they've got some time off before going on uh, a trip to Dallas and Chicago. Yeah, I mean, it will be an interesting one against San Jose. We'll see what Red Wings team shows up, if it's the team that's more competitive or the team that needs their goalie to bail them out. But either way, it should be an interesting game against a team in San Jose that's really struggling. Yep, yep, it should be, and it will only make me three hours late for that New Year's party I was talking about. So maybe I'll make (laughs) it by ball drop. Uh, That's it for us. Uh, We'll talk to you guys again in the middle of this week. Thank you guys so much as always, and uh, we'll talk to you then.